it would be ill-informed to say that social media does this or does the opposite. There's room for everything to happen in social media. That's why it's a very messy environment. We need to discern efficient paths to positive outcomes. Welcome to the Policy Net podcast by the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab. This is the place where top thinkers come to talk data and solutions that reset us along a more fair and smart path. Today we have a freehand conversation. Joining me are Homero Heldi Suniga and Brigitte Huber. Homero is a distinguished research professor at University of Salamanca and professor at State Penn. Brigitte is a professor at IU Internationale Hochschule. Together we discuss the hot topic of social media and trust in science. Social media news use and trust in science are positively related. That means that people that consume news on social media, they show higher levels of trust in science. They say there is little fake news on social media, but its concentration and effects are worrisome. We constantly make this mistake in the public sphere when we discuss the idea of fake news that we're surrounded by fake news, and that is not true. Most of information that we come across might be factual. The problem is that the amount of information, although small, that is fake news may be very influential. We debate what is actually understood as science on social media. Epistemically, what is science, what is factual, what is not factual, and how we take a common ground of understanding to move forward as a society. If we all citizens cannot come into an agreement what is scientifically sound and what is factual versus what is non-factual, we have problems. We had a look at online news stories that dealt with natural science and also with social sciences. And it was very interesting because for some people, the social sciences is not real science. Science is really a different thing for different groups of people. Don't paint social media with a broad brush. They say when it comes to science news, platforms are not equal. There might be networks or platforms that are more symmetrical, like Facebook, but in other platforms like Twitter, I might follow you, but you don't have to follow me back. This asymmetric versus symmetric will create different contextual information clouds. I'm Ionesco Zulia Shevchuk, and I'm your host here. Homero, Brigitte, let's dive right in. Much guilt for the erosion of trust in science is laid at the feet of social media and the echo chambers it creates. The result of debate going on and informed but still speculations. You guys, however, come with data, concrete data, having conducted a 20-country study on this. So to set the stage, could you give us the basic setup and the design of this study? For this study, we partner with uh, different colleagues from New Zealand and other universities and parts of the world. And we collected, thanks to a large grant, data on over 20 countries. Now, the project had to do with digital instruments and at large, to what extent digital technology and digital media had affected our world at many different capacities. But for this particular study, we were interested on the effects of social media and how it affected people's levels of trust in science and trust in institutions and so on and so forth. So I, I will not take much more time on the specifics of the study, but we wanted to include a diverse number of countries in the list. So we got countries from Latin America to like Argentina, Brazil, Chile, etc., and also countries from Asia that is harder to obtain data, as for instance, China or Philippines. So second question is, what did your research reveal? What are the findings you find most critical and perhaps as it happens with other experts we interview here, findings that surprised even you as researchers running the study? 
Yes, the main finding of our study, Fostering Public Trust in Science, the Role of Social Media, is that social media news use and trust in science are positively related. That means that people that consume news on social media, they show higher levels of trust in science. And this was an interesting finding, but what was really surprising for us, that this relationship was even stronger than the relationship between traditional news use such as newspapers, TV and radio news, and trust in science. So we wondered how could that be? And we identified three mechanisms that could be at play here. First, social media diversify and expand information networks. That means social media users have greater chance of encountering science news than non-users because they are exposed through incidental exposure in addition to active news seeking. So it's more likely that they get in contact with news. And the second is that social media news is supplemented by social recommendations and people engage with news posted by people they trust. And therefore people are more likely to trust the science news on social media because it was likely posted by a social contact they trust. And finally, on social media, people can get science news directly from scientists. And interestingly, if people have the choice, they prefer scientists to present scientific information rather than journalists. And this was a result of a special Eurobarometer back in 2007. So uh, this could also be at play here. Thank you very much, Brigitte. Let's elaborate on this. You mentioned something very interesting, meaning that your study finds positive relations between social media news and trust in science across different countries. Now, that goes a bit against the grain, for lack of a better word. Some of the experts we had on this podcast series and who are writing for the lab point out how social media bolsters polarization, how it reinforces the often partisan echo chambers and how it aids the spread of misinformation. All these are feared to erode public trust in science. Based on your study and your reading of the situation, do these fears hold? Yeah, that's a fascinating question because I completely believe it's, it's also true. So the thing is that I don't think it goes at odds with our particular study because of the measurement of our study and the angle that we took about how citizens were using social media in diverse societies overall, had this type of effect that my colleague Huba was describing. So it is true that we found that when we measured generalistic engagement with social media and social media news consumption, it will have this positive effect about trust in science. However, that I don't think it goes at odds with what you're describing and the opportunity for social media to generate echo chambers is also prevalent. In fact, I think in social media, everything tends to happen. I'll, I'll provide a very quick example to understand how this might be the case. We have, for instance, two very sensitive ways of engaging and relating with information in social media if we take into account how the platform and the algorithms work. So, for instance, one way to understand how people get exposed to information in social media in particular platforms, this is distinct, would be based on what we call social algorithms, right? So because of what your network clicks and see and likes and share, you might be exposed to certain content. Now, that is different from a more curated personalization of the algorithms because the algorithms in social media platforms will also understand and learn 
from our individual use. So whatever I click and like and share and how I engage with the information would also dictate and teach the algorithm the kind of information that I'm interested on. And I'll be ultimately presented with that type of information because ultimately all social media platforms, they want users to engage, to stay in the platform. So that, considering how people are using these two algorithms or how these two algorithms uh, have a balance, people may have very different experiences. So your experience with social media might be very different to my experience with social media. And this also includes diversity of platforms. It's not the same how people are consuming information on TikTok versus Facebook versus Weibo. Um, so all these things and how algorithms are curated also transform the ways people get exposed to information. So opportunities for echo chambers, they do tend to happen as well. Particularly if I, as an individual, curate my algorithm to get exposed to information that aligns with ideologically with my views, for instance, and I am very consistent at it. I can filter, I can block other people, I can disregard any other type of information, and ultimately over time, I will start generating these echo chambers and this concise evidence, empirical evidence that this is taking place. Now let's talk about the blind spots of your data and your research. You did not look into the accuracy of scientific information gathered on social media, into misinformation and into the fake science news circulated on these platforms. Arguably, that's a big part of the debate and the worries when it comes to public standing of science and trust or mistrust in it. Would if such an additional focus shift tangibly the results and the outcomes of your study? And are you factoring in this into your current or future research? In the pandemic, scholars in the field of science communication became increasingly interested in investigating the role of disinformation, misinformation, fake news in social media. And for example, the Austrian Corona panel at the University of Vienna found that people that use WhatsApp, Instagram or YouTube to stay informed about news are less likely to recognize this disinformation compared to users that get their news from public broadcast or quality newspapers. So thinking of findings like this, now with the pandemic, after the pandemic or in the pandemic, we would certainly design our study a bit different or add something. So maybe Omero, you also had some ideas what we could change in the design or add. Homero, would you like to add? I think we should get started by discerning one important aspect of all this. So we know based on data that for the most part, we are not highly exposed to fake news. So the percentage of overall factual news as opposed to fake news, it's very low. So it's not that we are constantly exposed to a high degree of fake news. Now, that data that we do have doesn't mean that it doesn't have an effect. And this is what I think things come into play because maybe a lower exposure or just a small proportion of information that we might come across in social media might be fake news, but that might be very influential. So there are two different things in here. I think we constantly make this mistake in the public sphere when we discuss the idea of fake news, that everything is fake news and we're surrounded by fake news. And that is not true. For the most part, most of information that we come across might be factual. The problem is that the amount of information, although small, that is fake news may be very influential. And that's what I think we should perform specific studies to account for this, to account for the level of influence with a small amount of misinformation and disinformation. And I know there's a heated debate among us, among academics, about the differences between misinformation, disinformation, and so on and so forth. Ultimately, this might also be important because 
the fact that you are exposed as an individual to information that is non-factual, but you might not know it's non-factual and you might share it, is different than when I get exposed to information that might be non-factual, and I know clearly that it's non-factual, but I prefer and actively choose to share that information because it might align with my ideological views, for instance. That is very different. So ultimately, all these granularities and different issues should be taken into account, maybe run different experiments to account for how the viralization and dissemination of fake news takes place. Because for the data that we have, and not by us, but in the literature, we learned that most of this dissemination tends to do with this idea that I just described, that people do or might recognize this information might be non-factual. However, it's funny, it aligns with my views, I'm going to share it. And you don't know the damage that I might be having on others that obliviously may not take that as uh, non-factual information and take it for granted. So that, in fact, is also problematic. One thing you said is that the ratio, the proportion of the fake news in the overall news we get on social media is not that high, which goes against the current, let's say, and the panic and the debate that there is so much fake news out there. Do you have an idea, data, or even a guesstimate of what is the proportion of fake versus real news, so to say, on social media? I don't know. I can find that paper and send it your way. But the proportion was low. As I said, more than the proportion, I think that you describe something important in society. One is, it might be low proportion, but it might have an effect. And second, things do matter if we collectively think that they do matter. If we all decide that fake news is an important issue, it would be an important issue. It will become an important issue. And I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying that we need to take into account the data to understand what's going on. So once again, the proportion is not that high. The effects of it might be high. The discussion around it should be important, but we might not be deceived by this idea that we're constantly bombarded by fake news because I don't think that is what is happening. And once again, and we discussed this earlier, there will be differences, meaning there might be individuals out there that they have a very large proportion of fake news exposure because of how they curate their news and their echo chambers and their networks. They might be, I don't know, largely conspiracy networks and they become part of that because those are the things that I'm clicking, I'm watching, I'm specifically clicking on those videos on YouTube and the algorithm will understand what I like and it will, if you made the analogy, it will allow me to go deeper in the rabbit hole. So ultimately, I might be, as an individual, highly exposed to fake news. But once again, that's not everybody. Or what we know, based on data, is that for the most part, regular citizens, the proportion of the exposure to fake news is not that high. Now, the effect is a different conversation. Well, my second follow-up question is on your mentioning of fake versus real science news, as in factual versus non-factual news. That reminded me of a study I was reading on trust in science, and when people were asked whether they trust science, they said yes. But then when you look into what they mean by science, things shift. Some would talk about alternative science, for example. So in your study, when you look into social media and trust in science, do you think you should be factoring in what people actually mean by science? This is certainly a limitation, yes. But what we asked is how much do you trust in scientific institutions and how much do you trust scientists? So we already captured two dimensions, but you are right. We did not capture what science means in their views. So this is certainly a direction for future studies. But however, this is a very common item or very common items 
to capture trust in use. And this is also important, as Omero mentioned before, because if you are planning service in so many countries, you need to use measurements that do not need so much space, so much items. So here we decided to go with this measurement. But in another study with a colleague, I analyzed user comments. So we had a look at online news stories that deal with natural science and also with social sciences. And yes, we did a content analysis of these user postings below the news story. And it was very interesting because for some people, the social sciences is not real science. And this is an old debate and an old discussion, an old discourse, but it still goes on. So still science is really a different thing for different groups of people. And there is still this huge gap between natural sciences and social sciences. However, there is good hope that this gap will maybe become smaller because more and more people study and more and more people get into contact with different disciplines and so on. So my hope is that our society will get more open about what science is and what is not science. Romero? I think your question, Julia, is fascinating because it opens this door to the idea of epistemically, what is science, what is factual, what is not factual, and how we take a common ground of understanding to move forward as a society, uh, not only in terms of science, but also as a democracy. If we, all citizens and democratic actors, we cannot come into an agreement what is scientifically sound and what is factual versus what is non-factual, we have problems. And uh, we are in a contextual situation in which this may be exacerbated. And let me elaborate on this. So people now, for instance, on the one hand, they're starting to think that the news that do not align with their views may be fake news. So this has implications for policymakers because we need to have a common ground of understanding across different democratic actors about what is scientific and what is sound and what is factual. Related to this is the notion of hostile media perception, which is when citizens they have the view or the perception that the news they're reading goes against them. They are hostile to them as individuals, to their views, to their political stance, so on and so forth. And what we know based on experimental studies is that the larger the effort taken by journalists to come across as fair and balanced and present both sides of an issue perhaps and become more factual, the greater the chances for individuals to perceive those news are actually hostile to their views, regardless of the ideological spectrum there might be. So this is problematic because it speaks to this idea that we're having a hard time as a society to reach a common ground on what is factual versus what is non-factual. And this may be problematic not only for policymakers, but for all of us as we move forward as a society. Begit Homero, you already mentioned differences between platforms. We often talk about social media as it's a monolith construct, which it is not. In this particular case, when it comes to science, news, social media, and trust in science, why differences between platforms matter? That's the first question. And then the second layer to my question is maybe far-fetched, but do you think there are certain setups and certain kinds of platforms that are more conducive to the spread of accurate scientific information? We did not differentiate between different social media platforms. What we know is that platforms differ in their user characteristics. TikTok, for instance, is discussed to be a rather liberal app. So 63% of Democrats or lean Democrats report to use TikTok for getting news. 
compared to only 32% of Republicans or lean Republicans, as shown in the latest report of the Pew Research Center. So discussions on scientific topics such as climate change or so on are different there. Then on other platforms, for example, as Telegram, where a lot of conspiracy beliefs circulate. And in a study that got accepted today in the journal Environmental Communication, we showed that eco-influencers on TikTok, they refer to science and scientific journals and so on when they talk about sustainability, for example. And so the discourse on TikTok is also evidence-based, which might be good in terms of fostering public trust in science. Homero, anything to add? platforms themselves, they also provide specific distinct affordances that might also have an essay in how people uh, handle information. So for instance, there might be networks or platforms that are more symmetrical, like Facebook, that if I befriend you, you need to befriend me. So we become friends on Facebook or we follow each other, if you allow me to use that wording. But in other platforms, like for instance, Twitter, I might follow you, but you don't have to follow me back. So this asymmetric versus symmetric affordance, for instance, just to enumerate one example, will create different contextual information clouds. Because as an individual, if I start following up on Twitter, scientists and institutions versus following anything else, I might be a very well-informed citizen because I only follow mainstream media, factual outlets, journalistic outlets, professional outlets, and scientists and institutions. Therefore, my news ecosystem might be very different if another individual only follows on Twitter different accounts that have nothing to do with this type of information. So all of a sudden, I had a very direct influence on how I get exposed to information because of my asymmetric exposure to information in that platform on Twitter versus Facebook, which might be different. And then to this salad of information, we need to add how the different platforms are maximizing the algorithms to hook you up to the platform, and so you use it more. So things might even change a little bit more. But as you see, yes, definitely different platforms will handle information differently, and that coupled with the notion of how individuals deal with information will provide you with the final output as for how people are exposed to trust scientific information or news, hard news or factual information. Now let's go into COVID and how and if it changed anything. Your research happened before COVID and before the pandemic. If you had to conduct it today, would you expect things to change? Has COVID-19 with what some experts called overexposure to and off science shifted the ground? Yeah, I can maybe start with, okay. with a study that I looked into today. It was from Germany and they had a look at survey data before the pandemic and then after the start of the pandemic. And interestingly, trust in science in Germany increased at the beginning of the pandemic. And then afterwards, it slightly decreased. So it was before the pandemic, 36% of respondents said that they trust science. And then shortly after the beginning of the pandemic, it was 73%. So really an increase. And then after some months, it decreased again a bit. So I think this is very interesting because in the beginning where there was so much uncertainty, science fulfilled the rule of giving important information, given orientation in these troubling times. And then afterwards, trust decreased again. 
I think this is very interesting. So we cannot make this general claim that now with the pandemic, trust is a problem. No, as we see, it is increasing, decreasing, but it is not that in the times of pandemic, we have really a big problem of trust in science. Homero, can you give us your views? Also, one of the main problems that we have in social science yields to the notion of causality or order. How can we make sure that the variables that we indicate will predict something are actually predicting that? How can we make that connection, particularly when we're talking about survey data? So that is important, although we take every precaution possible and we collect panel data with the minutes, the problem of causality because you can predict things in time and so on and so forth. Even in experimental conditions in the field of psychology, they're having problems with replication issues these days. So knowing what we know as a scientist is important to us. So I think with COVID, we could have a great opportunity here. And let me elaborate on this a little bit. We collected data on all these nations just right before the COVID broke out. If we were to have the funds, which at this at this point in time we don't, but maybe someone who hears this is interested in funding this research, <laughs> if we were to have the funds, we could collect data on the same people. And then we have what in social sciences called a natural experiment, which is the best way of having causality in science when it revolves around humans. The idea that I can collect some data today then something happens which is beyond our control. That's the natural stimuli, which was the COVID breakout. And then afterwards, I collect data on the same people. So we will be able to compare the pre and post very nicely. Unfortunately, as I said, we do not have the funds to conduct the study. But even if we got the funds to conduct maybe a smaller sample of all these countries, would be very useful for science because we could compare how things were before COVID and then ask the same people how things are post-COVID. We had so many researchers on this podcast, but you're the first one to use this avenue to fundraise for follow-up research. <laughs> we're going to leave good. this part in. Who knows? Maybe someone hears it. Good, good, good. Thank you. <laughs> so let's go to the next question, and that is on how the public could and should perhaps be helped to navigate the massive streams of scientific information and misinformation. At the core of it, trust in science is a very asymmetric type of trust where the public that does not necessarily grasp the full complexity of scientific methods and of substance surrenders its judgment to the scientists, to the experts in the area. So some say, especially on social media, the public should be aided to discern the quality, the standing of experts rather than the quality of the scientific content. Experts on our previous podcast indicated that some sort of user-friendly indicators or metrics could help in this regard. What would your take be on this? Would you agree or would you have some other hands-on solutions and ideas to pitch? Yeah, I think any possibility or any reaction to information that may establish more practical means for people to get exposed to factual information will help. So one of the things that we're learning from our own research is that when people are exposed to social media, just by being exposed to news in social media, within time, they will develop what we call fake news literacy. They will be able to recognize what is fake news and they will be able to deal with them, right? And that in time also predicts something which is very important in all this non-factual or what I call pseudo-information environment 
of news, right? And is that they take action against it. They engage into what we call corrective action. When they see something is non-factual, they will correct it and say, look, do not trust this. This is not real. So for that to happen, they need to use more social media and develop the fake news literacy. Now, the key element here will be how do people become literate, right? So what we know, one of the things that we were able to find out that is important is the media locus control. They know things about information and the context of information, but even more importantly, perhaps, the notion or of need for cognition. What is need for cognition? When people have a necessity to know about things. So in the specific example of COVID, need for cognition will be very high. People will really want to know what's going on around me. So when this need for cognition and individuals report a higher need for cognition, that is also a positive predictor that in time they're going to develop fake news literacy. So there might be ways for policymakers to spark this need for cognition because we know that's one of the things that is going to work. So beyond the classic education, specific, I don't know, information campaigns that institutions and, and electoral officials may do, we should emphasize other aspects, other positive aspects of technology that might help. Like, you need to know about this. The need for cognition will be one of it. And let's be also frank, social media provides opportunities. I think it would be ill-informed to say that social media does this or does the opposite. There's room for everything to happen in social media. That's why it's a very messy environment. We need to discern efficient paths to positive outcomes because there will be also negative outcomes out of the use of social media. But we know there are positive outcomes out of the use of social media. Brigitte, could you give us more details on this? I would just uh, briefly add that another interesting finding of the paper on fake news literacy is that also traditional news use helps a lot. Why? Not for directly developing fake news literacy. No, because there you have to be active on social media. No, in taking these corrective actions. We found that people that use traditional media for news, such as TV, radio or newspapers, they are more likely to take corrective action when they encounter fake news. And this might be because they are up to date, they are informed. And then if they encounter something that is weird or that sounds not very factual, they might have the information they encountered by using traditional media and can use this knowledge to counter fake news. So it is also a very nice input to remember everyone that using different types of media for getting news always helps. Thank you. Now we slowly but surely move to the last but very important part of our conversation. Here on the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab, we have for an audience two groups, basically. One is researchers and knowledge producers, and then the other one is policymakers and decision makers. So in this last part, let's talk recommendations and hands-on solutions you'd like to pitch to these two groups when it comes to social media and trust in science. So addressing researchers, what are your recommendations? What are the knowledge gaps you think they should be addressing and digging deeper into? And how do you think they should be navigating for research communication this relatively new landscape of social media? As scientists, we should do a better job navigating this connection between what we do and society and individuals. For the most part, our conversations tend to be among ourselves. 
we publish, we get funding, and we continue to advance knowledge. But ultimately, who's reading our papers? They might be complicated. Individuals may not have the sophistication or the methodological or theoretical the advanced sophistication to understand what we're talking about in our research papers. So we could do a better job transmitting and disseminating this information through public channels and social media is perfect for that. It is true that at the same time that I'm saying this, perhaps one of the reasons as for why we don't do this that much is because it's not recognized in our daily tasks or our jobs. Perhaps the, the recognition to our roles as academics is to educate, to teach our classes and to perform research. And to some extent, yes, try to convey our ideas to others, talk to journalists, but not so much engage into this. Having said this, there are lots of people who are doing it. Now, I wouldn't stop that just there. I also want for others to serve their degree of responsibility as an individual. So two things that we learned recently in another study we conducted and recently published in Computers and Human Behavior, we learned that when people are exposed incidentally to information in social media, that doesn't increase their level of knowledge. In fact, they learn less. So there's something about incidental news that is not contributing for society to become more knowledgeable, right? However, when that incidental exposure leads people to engage with the news, and when I say engage is to either read those pieces of news or listen to those radio news or podcasts or watch the videos thoroughly, so engage with the news thoroughly, and second, reflect on it, what we call in academic grounds, cognitive elaboration. That is that once an individual has been exposed to information to a piece of news, we at a later time reflect on those news. We think about what those news mean to me, to my environment, and we make sense of things. So when those two things happen, after being incidentally exposed to news, either I engage with information thoroughly or I reflect on those news, that leads to a greater knowledge. So that predicts positively that people learn about important issues in society and political issues. So everything happens in social media. We just need to highlight these hydraulic effects on the positive side. So it's not just that you get exposed to news incidentally, it's what you do with those news once you get exposed. So that goes back to the notion of individual responsibility. We need to do a better job engaging with the news and reading the news and thinking about them and, and reflecting on them. So I'm going to stop there and allow some room for my colleague to also expose her thoughts. Brigitte, can you address this, please? Yes, and this very well fits what Omero just mentioned with uh, how do people engage with information they encounter. Because currently we are working in a project led by Professor Monika Tadiken from Technical University Braunschweig and Professor Nicole Kramer. We are a network of 15 scholars across Europe and we are working on the topic public online engagement with science information. So what Omer just explained, we now specifically investigated with regard to science, scientific information. And we aim at developing a theoretical framework. So we try to identify all the factors that need to be considered when investigating how people engage with science on social media. And now we started to distinguish different behaviors there and try to understand this mechanism. This helped then to explain the connection between the different ways of engaging with science and trust in science there. So you already touched upon this, but let's crystallize here the messages and the recommendations you have to policymakers and decision makers specifically when it comes to social media and trust in science. 
That is the million dollar question. I think we have given some generalistic ideas to implement better policies, but ultimately policies that will require effort and time to also conduct some studies as for what is working and what is not working, to have some retro feedback, some, some looping feedback on how things are working. But specifically to get started with, and I take that the main goal would be the objective to combat misinformation and, and so on and so forth. The idea would be to be very specific and generate campaigns that micro-target the audience, specifically knowing the way they engage with information and trying to be very brief to the point and clear, have an, an understanding of what are the important issues and what is factual. And let's not diminish the effect of a micro-targeting because we do have data and it's easily collectible. In a recent experiment by colleagues, Clyde DeVries and his group, they ran an experiment in which they tested first the different spectrum of uh, personality traits of the audience, of social media users, based on the data, based on how they were selecting news and so on and so forth, they were able to highlight different personality traits. So what they did in the experiment, they specifically target with micro-political ads using, if you were an introverted person, we would present our candidate as an introverted candidate. If you were extroverted, we would present our candidate as an extrovert. And it really works. So we do know, as I said, if corporations, social media platforms, political parties are using micro-targeting ads, they're using micro-targeted information in social media, at least we should be able to use this for good. And one of my more profound recommendations that I can state these days when it comes to social media is for uh, policymakers to understand how we can generate information based on what we know will be useful and efficient on particular individuals. We can cater the information to individuals rather than just generate larger, broader campaigns that we know might not be so effective. Brigitte Homero, we reached the end of this conversation. Thank you very much for such a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. It has been a pleasure to uh, catch up with you, Gite. Great to see you yes. again. <laughs> and also to talk to you, Julia. Great to bye. see you both. Bye. Yeah, bye. <laughs> Take it easy. To our listeners, thank you very much for being here. For more deep debate and data-driven solutions, follow the PolicyNet podcast on all major platforms. 